Hi, everyone. Today is April 6th. 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Today's guest is special for many scientific reasons, but um, also because way back in October 2007, he was our inaugural guest on the pod. And also, very important, he is the, um, what's it called? You're the composer of our theme music, credited on every podcast. So thank you. Hi, Jim. Pepper. Thank you very much. It's a um, pleasure to be here. Welcome back. Is my voice deep enough? <laughs> Perfect. So Jim is Distinguished Professor at the Center for Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience at Rutgers, Newark. He has been a key driving force in producing detailed and rigorous functional circuitry maps of the basal ganglia and never met a striatal interneuron that he wasn't ready to wrestle. Um, his work has been instrumental in fleshing out the cellular and computational complexity of the brain area formerly known as the extrapyramidal motor system. I haven't heard that in a while. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Alfonso Apicella. Hello. We've got Asif Maruf. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And I'm your host, Sama Karashi. So I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that 2007 discussion. It's great for many, many reasons. Um, Charlie hosted it, and um, it was October of 2007. And um, that discussion centered on basically on the diversity and origin of striatal uh, inner neurons. And I definitely want to revisit that in this discussion. Not only because uh, all of the things we discussed remain, to, remain important issues, but because the landscape has changed a lot, right? Um, so last we talked, you described kind of a canonical trio of inner neuron subtypes. Um, but the stories become even more complex with the addition of new classes and subclasses of inner neurons. So before we dive into a little bit of that, um, I just want you to say something from your, in terms of your, your kind of career long perspective on this. As a circuit scanning complexity um, of molecularly defined elements and their physiological signatures and connectivity, are we getting any closer to kind of a grand unifying theory of striatal computation or is that idea becoming yet more remote, nuanced and maybe even irrelevant? Uh, no, I don't think we're getting any closer yet, but I think we have to get further away before we get closer. I think um, um, one of the students asked me today, um, so now that we have all these new neuron types, the, the computational models of the basal ganglia, are they getting more accurate? And my answer was no. As far as I know, uh, most of the computational models include nothing but the spiny cell. One or two of them might include the fast-spiking inner neuron. Um, but nobody includes anything else, um, and it's. I think I think it's clear. We all know that um, the the interneurons, these GABAergic interneurons, are not simply um, performing some sort of Renshaw cell like uh, feedback inhibition. Uh, that is a, a very old and archaic view, almost as old as the idea that the that the basal ganglia is, is an extrapyramidal motor system, but I think there's hope. I think that the more, I think that the more that we learn, the more that we'll know, and pe people will start putting in these these inner neurons, especially as more and more of the an inner neuron by itself probably is not is not that interesting unless you know something about circuits that are involved. And now, because of the techniques that we are that are available. Um, we have, we're starting to learn about little microcircuits, and those can be incorporated 
uh, into into models, and I think they will eventually. It's just uh, it's going to be complicated. We don't we don't have the advantages that the people that work in Cortex and Hippocampus do, which are the laminar uh, structure of the laminar structure of, of the cortex itself, uh, and the and the incredibly precise laminar targeting of uh, the principal afferents and even the many of the interneurons. So what is the um what so we're getting so many more and more interneurons. What why do we need so many interneurons? Because they're not all the same. They don't do all, they don't all do the same thing. The only thing that they have in common, I think, is uh, I mean w- one of the interneurons is almost is almost not an interneuron. The cholinergic interneuron is so um, important and does so many things. It's it's almost like uh, an, an an additional intrinsic driver of the striatum because it, it it's controlling in a lot of ways many of the interneurons as well as the spiny cell directly. So the cholinergic neuron is, is is special of course, but the GABAergic interneurons aside from having GABA in them um, do all kinds of different things. So. so uh, at least one of the interneurons um, has this very, very slow uh, IPSC, IPSP, which means that uh, so, which means that the conductance is so long-lasting that there aren't any circumstances under which um, the uh, a, a shift in the chloride potential could cause a depolarization to outlast the conductance change and lead to excitatory an excitatory GABAergic response, which, um, you know, there's several been several papers that posit excitatory GABAergic connections in the striatum, and maybe some t- under certain conditions there are, um, but the, not for the NGF cell. And um, I think that the, I think that the kind of specificity that we showed about the uh, parafasicular glutamatergic input to the, the NPY LTS cell versus the NPY NGS cell is just one example of what we're going to find as we, um, as we continue to exploit these tools. So, uh, Alfonso, you, you have the PT and the IT lines, and I know you're a cortical guy, but you're also interested in cortical input to the striatum, and as, as, as that work proceeds, I am virtually certain that you're going to find uh, differential input to different cell types in the striatum, and and um, I was also Alphonse and I were talking earlier. Um, if we forget about interneurons for a second, and just we we many of us just came back from a basal ganglia meeting, and and one of the topics at the basal ganglia meeting was uh, of, of the most widely held um, and and uh, and most commonly cited heuristic model of the uh, throughput or the structure of the basal ganglia that was designed to account for the symptomatology of Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. And and in this model, there are two neurons, uh, two flavors of spiny neurons. The the direct pathway neuron that has uh, 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 D1 receptors and and subsp, and the indirect pathway neurons has D2 receptors and and enkephalin. But we also agree, I think, that there's a third kind of neuron, a third spiny cell that is kind of an amalgam of both, right? There, there's five no. to eight. Sure. Can have both D1 and D2 receptors? Yeah, and, and substance P and enkephalin, five to eight percent of the cells. 
Oh, man, 5 to 8%. I, yeah, very small. I've always thought that was just the you know, margin of error in the measurements. Okay. Let's assume it's a, okay. Let's accept it as a margin of error. Anyway, so we have two kinds. Again, we have two kinds of spiny cells, but the spiny cells completely obey the, the patch matrix boundary, uh, the the striosomal matrix organization. So now uh, there are really four spiny cells. There's a, a patch one D one and this matrix D one and a patch D. So and I think that that it's going to turn. That these things are all going to turn out to be have very, very specific um, uh, inputs and outputs. Uh, and I don't think any of the models that we have now... But so so, they, so they, they may have different inputs and outputs, right? So, But that's not what differentiates these all these interneurons, right? They have different molecular markers. They have different electrophysiological characteristics. You, you could conceive that identical neurons yeah. could have different functions just based on the fact that they have different inputs and different outputs. Yeah, you right? could, you, so, you, but... But it's all you can't you can't you can't have one without the other. The inputs and outputs of a cell are, are, interact with the intrinsic properties of the cell to create what to create what the cell is and what the cell does. And um, some of the interneurons, uh, some of the GABAergic interneurons, um, project to the spiny cell and will inhibit it under certain conditions and will inhibit it with certain kinetics and uh, other interneurons, and I think I, I showed you two examples, um, are, are clearly do not project to the spiny cell and must be interneurons that are part of a network that connect other interneurons in the striatum. So the, all the, so yeah, so all the, I mean, there, we need all, all these, these different interneurons are not doing the same thing, and my major gripe with the people who talk about the striatum and and talk about the cell types is they talk about three cells in the striatum: the, the spiny projection neuron, the medium spiny neuron, and, uh, the uh, the cholinergic interneuron, and the fast spiking interneuron. But there are more. But but every GABAergic interneuron is not a fast spiking interneuron. So if there's somebody if they're going to be so specific about <clears throat> uh, the different interneurons and different uh, computations, and the main difference is either Patch and matrix, or D, you know, D one and D two difference. Why did you call the uh, in your talk today? Call all the uh, spiny projection neurons SPN neurons like they were one? Do you think they're going to be different to different different ones? The inner neurons are going to do different things in patch and matrix, or to D one and D two? Are they going to be specific? So we haven't studied the patch and matrix yet. As far as as far as uh, D one and D two, um, we know from. Only from a from a very small subset of interneurons, we know that if you uh, have a TH Cree animal and you uh, inject channel rhodopsin and then you record uh, every single spiny cell that we recorded received uh, uh, an IPSC of about the same amplitude, and so the probability is uh, is very high. Uh, or the probability is zero that they were all either D1 or D2 neurons. And, and the probability is probably similarly very, very low that they were either all patch or all matrix neurons. So um, so the, the TH interneuron, at least, is is uh, uh, promiscuous. and But that's not surprising because when I showed the... the well, maybe it is, but when I when I showed the, the, a picture of the of the neuropil after you do uh, 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 
channel opsin injection into a TH3 animal, the, 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 the ramifications of the TH in their neuron are everywhere. They're certainly not like that for the LTS neuron. The LTS axons are, are the poster boy for highly specific um, spatial localization, which probably correspond to highly specific um, uh, functional or, 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 or cellular targeting. But are they going to be different? I mean, this is the thing. Are the, are the, do the inner neurons know what this, the structure of this binding projection network is? Or do they just go around local and global and stuff like that? Uh, we don't actually know that yet, right? I'm not saying we, we know. I'm just saying. I don't think so we know one that. of the things that we do know is that most of the interneurons, at least the interneurons have been studied the most, not necessarily most of the interneurons, but the interneurons that have been studied the most send their axons across striosomal boundaries, whereas the spiny neurons mostly don't send their axons across striosomal boundaries. So that was one of the things that was discovered about fast spiking cells and cholinergic interneurons, and I think somatostatin cells. That also TH cells. cells. So, uh, so that's, that's something to know. Uh, so they, um, they make a contrast with the spiny cells in that they disregard that boundary. But, what, but whether they target D1 or D2 cells is something that hasn't really been studied in great detail. I mean, uh, Kep has seen stuff like, can make a probabilistic argument. Right. Uh, every cell responds to this inner neuron, but there actually could be two groups of those inner neurons, ones that specifically go into D1 cells and ones that specifically go into D2 cells, and we wouldn't really know that yet. That's right. That would be something we'd find out later. That's right. So there's a, there's a lot of... You know, as long, if you accept the everything goes everywhere concept, which is the first, and and Tep says everything goes everywhere. We we uh, both know a story about where that uh, phrase came from when we were graduate students. There was a, there was a graduate student named Howard Everett. Howard, if you're listening to this, send me an email or something. I'd like to know what's happened to you. But <laughs> everything Howard, goes everywhere. He'll get Howard, it. Howard was in class, <laughs> and, and he was being questioned by the professor about connections to the hippocampus, and at one moment he just grabbed the chalk, threw it down against the floor, said, everything goes everywhere, and stomped out of the room. <laughs> and, uh, and so he became known as Howard, everything goes everywhere. <laughs> but as long as you had, uh, were, uh, you would entertain the idea that connections were all probabilistic and that everything went everywhere with some probability, then we didn't have to worry about this. But once we've opened the Pandora's box and you've right. seen that everything doesn't go everywhere, now for every single input and every single cell type and every single combination, now you have to figure it out. So that if there's 20 different kinds of cells, the number of possible combinations among them starts to become crazy high, and we have to work through every single one of those. I don't know how long that's going to take. But. That's why I say it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better eventually. But Yeah. There's one thing about the connectivity that um, you have shown that is that the TH interneuron, I believe, is the only one that receives reciprocal so far. projection back from the so far. And yeah, and I don't know what that means yet. But but uh, yeah. to to be fair, we haven't done so the cholinergic interneuron does get a reciprocal connection. Okay, right, of course. Yeah, um, it's just not a GABA. It's just not a GABA. No, it's not a GABA. Uh, the um, the the paired recordings are 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 hard to do, right? They they're, they're not trivially they're not trivial, and you don't always get what you want. 
and we don't have all the constructs that we want. So a lot of questions that we would like to have answered, we simply haven't done the experiments yet. And since, since the axons are severed in the slice, unless it's an incredibly robust uh, uh, connection with a very dense axonal field like the NGF cell, um, you might have to do a whole bunch of pairs with and get 75% failure before you decide that, oh, yeah, there really is a, really, really is a connection. So it was an accident that we discovered that, that back projection from the spiny cell to the TH inner neuron. I, don't, I didn't mean to imply that that's the only one. It's just the only one that the only GATA cell that we've found so far. I, I would be, I'd be willing to bet that there are others. So I have a question about that. I mean, you're right. I think um, the circuit now uh, is incompatible with the idea that GABAergic interneurons are all feedforward interneurons, which was the way of thinking in the uh, past. And one of the one of the most compelling arguments you give is for neuron interneurons whose targets are strictly other interneurons. So that implies some kind of chain of interneurons, or maybe some kind of network, a couple network of interneurons that are connected with each other. Can we add to, I mean, feedforward inhibition is still a valid idea. Sure. But now we need to add some new idea about interneuron to interneuron inhibition. Uh-huh. Um, and there must be some kind of activity in a network like that because networks of inhibitory neurons that aren't firing don't do anything, so there has to be some kind of something that's keeping those going. And then, what's what's the new idea? How do we, re- how should we build a um, functional model for how these chains of interconnected interneurons? So I don't know. The functional model is is, is your that's your job. But anyway, just because they don't fire in slice, of course, doesn't mean they don't fire in vivo. And all we really care about is what they're doing in vivo. So I think the the probability is that. Uh, everybody is firing some at some point in vivo. We just are not seeing seeing that in vitro. And you are seeing it in vitro when you block the inhibition. Uh, uh, the yeah, there are some, uh, some of those are spontaneously active. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. So some are spontaneously active. It's just all of them aren't. And um, what maybe to answer what Todd said, like what good is all of this, or or a partial answer of how do we start to conceive of this? Uh, uh, how's this for an idea? I uh, uh, hope, hope a lot of people don't listen to this, but because uh, it just occurred to me. But uh, uh, so the 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 axon collateral network between spiny cells is, um, as you know, one on one. One spiny cell at the level of that axon initial segment is has a very weak influence on another spiny cell. However. Since so many of the synapses in the striatum are spiny cell, spiny cell synapses, the network has to be doing something. So what is the network doing and how is it doing it? If it's not doing it one-to-one, it's doing it by ensembles of neurons, ensembles of neurons, as Jeff as, and other people have suggested. What is creating the ensembles of neurons? Maybe one of the things that is creating temporarily or the ensembles of neurons are these interneuron networks and that are constantly um, shuffling around and creating temporary pools of spiny cells that are then, you know, interacting in laterally with other temporary pools of spiny cells. Maybe one of the things that the that the uh, interneuron interneuron connections are doing is helping to is helping to set these 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 
these ensembles up. So in a system like that, it seems like spatial organization of, of early connectivity is going to be so important to setting up those relationships and then you know the timing that falls out of it later. And I think a recurring theme here is in the in the in the podcast is that what you call something matters, right? So we, we categorize these inner neurons as some molecular marker like pervalbumin or TH or uh, or and that now we're kind of modifying those with something about how they how they perform physiologically. Do you think it's going to get any clearer if we can somehow go back in time, go back in development, find origins, find some sort of principle that lays out the connected, like what is the, is there some other scheme that we can use that may reveal a modularity that may make this uh, system make more sense? Do you so, see any? So Jens Leffler-Hurling uh, gave a talk at IBAGS where he is doing, um, is, it, is it proteomics or transcriptomics? Transcription. So he's looking at, looking at transcripts in cells and doing, uh, like, basically, uh, um, I guess, PCA to group the, to group the, 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 the uh, some known neurons based on the transcripts that they share, uh, and uh, out, of, out of this analysis falls um, the, the so-called classical inner neurons, uh, as well as the NGF neuron shows up. And as well as the TH interneuron, and oddly enough, with the TH interneuron, it almost looks like there's kind of two groups of that. But more interesting is the fact that of the in if I get if I get this right in in Yen's scheme, the two NPY neurons are are very are actually very far apart, and uh, and the NGF neuron is actually closer. To the parvalbumin interneuron than it is to the other NPY interneuron. So as um, as transcript uh, transcript analysis, transcriptomics, transcriptomics uh, uh, gets more and more sophisticated, and, we, and gene chipping and all that other kind of stuff, I think that we 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 will find things that um, will allow us or will will reinforce the, the, the sort of qualitative grouping that we've put on these cells uh, in, in some way that, that, uh, uh, that, that reinforces the, 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 these functional distinctions between cells. But as you're showing your data, by putting a barcode in this cell, is not going to tell us everything anyway, correct? We right. still have to see how they are connected, yeah. trying to understand what they do. Circuits. Circuits. <laughs> yeah, the circuits are, are very important. Although the connections could be exactly yeah. could be programmed by exactly. all of that. that other so once you know the systematic, if you knew yeah. that system, you might be able to predict everything else, which would be that would save us from doing millions of paired recordings right. and all that sort of uh -huh. stuff. That's right. Which is a fate. I I don't worse than death actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I actually want to know. I want, why do you think it's a clue? Why why are these TH expressing the rest? Why are they why are they expressing TH? What's everybody? That is the question that I get asked more than anything else. Is that a, it's a, it's I, I I don't know, and I think it's I think it, it's it's a, I, because because genes are leaky. Uh, 
I've heard people say that, but I always laugh when I hear it because I don't know what it means. It, it means that there isn't, there is not perfect promoter and repressor control of genes, and it's just our good fortune. Those people who study the striatum that we found a cell that we couldn't identify before that uh, has interesting properties and and whose circuitry we are beginning to understand expresses uh, expresses the enough of the molecular control machinery for the transcription of the TH gene so that GFP finds it so that so that we can see it in a back transgenic animal or in a in a Cree animal. I don't think, um, I, and I've seen, I continue to see. So we published a paper in 2015 where so I didn't have time to talk about everything today. But so we looked. We Harry looked. Harry Zenius looked really hard. Harry Zenius really wanted these cells to be, uh, if not dopaminergic. He was going to be. He was going to be satisfied that he could force them into a dopamine phenotype by giving them, by torturing them, by giving six hydroxy dopamine, getting rid of the rest of the dopamine, by giving uptake inhibitors, by blocking this, by blocking that, um, and and nothing worked. So in, in fact, the the way he did his experiment is backwards from the way that I actually represented it. He first did the voltammetry, tried everything he could to get the cells to to release dopamine, and they wouldn't release dopamine. All the while he's doing this through 2011 and 12 and 13 and 14, he's seeing papers published by other people that these cells are compensating for the death of dopamine neurons in Parkinson's disease by increasing their number and by doing this, and he's... Uh, He's sort of beside himself because he he can't show any dopamine release no matter what he does. So then Harry goes uh, back to what we probably should have done in the first place and starts to look uh, immunocytochemically at at required substances for dopaminergic neurons. And he you know the first thing he does is perfect uh, dopamine immunocytochemistry. In aldehyde fixed tissue, which turns which turns out to be very tricky, and he wanted to make sure there was no maybe dopamine, maybe they really had dopamine, but because they didn't have a vesicular monoamine transporter or DAT, they couldn't release it. And he worked really, really hard to perfect dopamine staining until he got the dopamine staining down perfect, and the midbrain looks wonderful, and there just isn't any dopamine in the striatum except in an unlesioned uh, animal. Uh, where he's looking at the, at the hole where the GFP would be for the dopa, for the TH neuron, he sees puncta surrounding <laughs> where the TH neuron. Those puncta are presumably dopamine terminals of, of nigrostriatal dopamine neurons, which then led us to some other experiments. But uh, and then he tried looking at DAT, uh, uh, the dopamine uh, uh, transporter. And when he couldn't find the dopamine transporter, then we had the answer for why. These cells don't die with uh, 6-hydroxydopamine or MPTP or in Parkinson's disease because the transport is required for for the toxins to work. And then he, he looked for uh, the vesicular monoamine transporter, uh, and he couldn't find that either. So the cells, were the, so it was just an accident that the cells 
have the gene to create TH, and I don't think it means anything except that it's a convenient marker. But these guys have dopamine receptors, yeah? Because yeah. they presumably... Oh, oh yeah, yeah. They, yeah, so they, yeah. Do, does TH regulate... Do, do we know if TH directly regulates... I mean, you could imagine that dopamine... Um, so, so yeah, dopamine, the t dopamine levels uh, regulate the TH transcription in TH neurons. So that if you do a 6-hydroxydopamine lesion, if you look at a, at a section of a normal, uh, a normal animal and, or a, a, a THGFP animal and double label um, for uh, TH, you find very, very, very few uh, EGFP-positive neurons that are also positive for TH. If you, however, um, do a 6-hydroxydopamine lesion, uh, the two things happen. One is... There, there appear to be more, uh, 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 the, the number of, of double-labeled neurons appears to go way, it does go way, way up. And it's not because there are more uh, EGFP neurons. They don't go up very much at all. They change by 15% or something like that. Uh, and, and, but, the, but now you can see TH in 20 or 25% of the neurons. And that's because the, presumably the loss of the dopamine input um, is affecting the the uh, the t th synthesis in the th interneurons, so it's because dopamine is somehow repressing it, and it's true. So it's 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 half of what should happen if they're gonna if they're going to compensate for the loss of dopamine neurons. Unfortunately, they don't have enough th, and they don't have any of the other stuff to make dopamine, um, but they they do respond to dopamine, and they respond electrophysiologically to dopamine, as do. Uh, as do a bunch of other of the interneurons, as does a fast spiking interneuron, and we haven't we haven't tested all of the others yet. But so that is that's kind of a um, it highlights the idea that the barcode, the molecular barcode, does predict their their um, their connectivity and their physiology, right? So these these neurons would have never been found if at some point in their formation during embryogenesis they expressed TH at one point, right? And that's why. And the TH transgenic animals, they, they show up now. Poss maybe. Right? Maybe. So, I, I don't know. Possibly that's right. Yeah. But the point is, that's just a molecular marker yes. that, that has, probably has, as you're implying, have nothing to do with the neuron in its adult state. That's right. Um, but it definitely predicts uh, their connectivity and their activity and probably how they function in the striatum. So maybe this barcode idea is a good one. I don't know. Well, TH is definitely expressed even at like embryonic stages, and it goes basically through oscillations. So yeah. I think if you had like a Cree reporter, um, the Cree recombinase would take act. So if a cell is expressing TH at any point in its life, it will express Cree and then recombine, and that recombination event is permanent right. through adulthood. So we could very well be looking at cells that express TH at some stage during development that yeah. maybe don't use it functionally later. So that's true. You know, we have not done uh, we have not done any experiments on neonatal animals, like in the first first week of yeah. life. But that even that might be too late. It might be too late, yeah. They might, might be just during embryogenesis. Yeah, and that would be that would be not so but, but it's, so is it a possibility that the fact that they did express TH at some point during embryogenesis, during during migration up toward cortex, um, 
that that is what determines where they're going to stop in the migration or where, how they're going to connect to other neurons. It's possible. Right? I, we, I just I just don't know. It's, of course, it's, yes, it's possible. There are TH positive interneurons in the cortex, right? You know what you're saying? Uh, we we, uh, we haven't studied that extensively. I mean, I haven't looked all that much, but my my impression is that there are there are fewer none. So maybe they just don't migrate that far. And the pictures you showed, there's pieces of cortex there, and there wasn't. There were like, was like one. There was one neuron, like maybe, or or it could have been a flack of, of the dirt. Right? <laughs> I don't know what it was. Yeah, but certainly not like the striatum. So the notion, there's a notion that the neurons in the inner neurons in the cortex and inner neurons in the striatum are basically the same thing. That just you know, one of them stopped along the way, and the, but if you look at Yen's family of inner neurons, um, the, those dendrograms that show proximity mm -hmm. and similarity, it's not like that, right? It looks like there are neurons that we call LTS cells and neurons that are LTS cells in the cortex that are really, really unrelated to each other. And uh, the parvalbumin cells were especially uh, crazy and uh, numerous in subtypes and not the same in the cortex and the Striatums. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to understand since they all come from the same place. And they probably come from clones of each other, right? Don't you think that all the PV uh, cells start off from the clone of, of a medial ganglionic eminence PV precursor cell? And, and then something happens. Yeah, but possibly. I mean, there numerous things could happen that cause them to spread farther and farther sure. apart in these expression. Because, of course, this is just measuring expression. So it's a... Uh, a plastic thing that gets that gets altered a lot during development. So those cells come from a, all cells come from a common precursor. It doesn't really mean a thing. And so the 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 actual diversity of inner neurons between the cortex and striatum is an empirical thing for us to discover. And I, I'm not saying that Yen's thing was uh, definitive or final, but it was shocking to me that the, that the Especially the part of the album itself, difference, differences yeah. between cortex and striatum are big. So what was the expression of what was he looking at? Just a whole bunch of things? Oh, it was a lot of different things, a lot of which I don't even didn't recognize and didn't even know what they were. Some of them were transcription factors, which would seem like likely things to be interested in, but some of them were just ordinary things that we were used to, including the cytochemical markers that we use, like neuropeptide Y or substance P or something like that. You could potentially, if they were the same thing, you could potentially make the backward argument, right? All the things that are different are the things that are different between striatum and cortex, that the expression levels of all the stuff that doesn't change. Maybe the LTS, the thing that makes an LTS cell and an LTS cell is pretty much the same. And all this other stuff is irrelevant that gets changed where they, depending on where they end up. Yeah, actually, if you took my perspective on it, you'd say the thing that makes a cell a cell type has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It has to do with ion channels. Yeah, and so whatever the, the expressions of the ion channels were there or were conserved, and yeah. all the other stuff is And of course, if they stuff. made this map using ion channels, they would say LTS cells in the cortex and the striatum are really similar to each other yeah. because they have very similar ion right. channels. That's right. But that, that isn't the, those are not the transcripts in, in common practice for this kind of stuff. So the question then becomes which uh, group of things that are expressed depend, you know, influence yeah. connectivity. Yeah. Is it all that other stuff? 
or is it the same similar things that are expressing ion channels that determine who connects to who? I think the answer is whichever one turns out to be most useful. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 We, that's that's stuff to, to be determined. But yeah. To, that one of the things that is missing in a lot of the transcriptomic stuff is the focus on ion channels. And I think it's just a cultural difference between the people that do transcriptomics and the people that do neurophysiology. So they, everybody agrees molecules are important, but everybody focuses on a slightly different set of molecules. Well, we know what molecules, like you said, there's two camps. There's the development soul side, and uh, some of the work I did in my PhD was looking at this exact question of regional specificity within the uh, medial ganglionic eminence and how you could take those regions, subregions, graph them into adults in the cortex or striatum, and they retain their fate specificity as well as their capacity for forming specific connections. Which, But, like you said, very little is known what happens from the stage of, in development to when they express full-blown like ion channels and uh, physiological properties. Um, and I feel like that's a big area right now in the field. Uh, are there uh, are there substances that um, uh, induce de-differentiation that they, re they return uh, neurons to more primordial form? I mean, there are some that you can like molecules to keep them proliferating or in a proliferative state, but then some would argue that that could alter their fate as well. Okay. Um, what about... Because, like, the parvovimid neurons are, come from, like, a ventral uh -huh. MGE domain, but then a few days late, like, basically they're born a few days later. So, so I was wondering if maybe Harry gave up too soon, and maybe there's, like, some kind of magic uh, do-for-dust that we could squirt into the striatum that would take the TH inner neurons and make them, return them closer to what they were at whatever developmental stage they ex they, they really did uh, have, TH. have TH and 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 use that and use that as a Parkinson's therapy. Which would which would be better off, uh, not having dopamine or not having TH in neurons? I gotta say, <laughs> I gotta say that I'd rather uh, not have TH in neurons, but. Well, that means at this point is that my acoustic startle, uh, my PPI, pulsated inhibition, not work very well. So far, that's so, the so, only behavioral consequence yeah, of losing. You continue to jump at loud noises. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you could jump. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was also a study that came out a few years back from uh, Arnold Krigstein's group where they took MG precursors and transplanted them into uh, 6-OHDA lesioned animals. And found functional recovery. Where did they transplant them? Um, into the striatum as an alternative therapy to. They took MG medial ganglion. So interneuron precursors and put them into the damaged uh, striatum. And why did that? Why did that work? And they, it worked better than putting dopamine neurons in there. Why? And it was a very controversial study. I thought it was really interesting. It is very interesting. I want to know what you thought about that. I don't. I don't know about it, but I'm. I'm, uh, I'm wondering if I'm going to have to eat my words about these things not ever being dopaminergic neurons and impossible to induce them to become dopaminergic neurons. I'd <laughs> be okay if I was wrong and showed up. gave you an opportunity to pull back and you just kept going with that. <laughs> no, no, I still, you know, look, all the experiments that we did are, the, the data are the data. Mm -hmm. we, we, you know, what I showed is what we showed. For what it's worth, it, the TH is expressed in human interneurons as well, like 
pretty highly, and that was very confusing, but there might be some conservation there. Yep. So just um, before we close, I just want to say we've had a couple of neuroeconomics discussions here, and in those, you sort of have this dopamine signal, and then you have a behavioral readout, and things are muddy, and then you have start discussing things like context, and you try to delimit it, and you know, really valiantly. But I just love, I love that 2012 paper where you have a dopamine signal, and then you have it sort of transduced into these two channels that have two very different effects at the spiny neuron, and you've got that kind of intermediate step pulled back into the brain before you get to behavior. And I just love that you're, what you're doing by mapping all this stuff is like helping us talk about what context means for these guys that are trying to do behavior and just looking at dopamine signal and behavior. And I feel like it's, well, it's always so, so gratifying to hear this level. Too of, bad you're not sitting on uh, an know. NLH study I know. Section. Everybody wants to behave. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants the right to behave. I agree with you. I would like to have <laughs> my <laughs> study section too. Wait, you don't get funded for being context? Right, that's off limits. Funding is off limits for this uh, podcast, yeah. right? So this is, We're talking shop, not depressing <laughs> realities of money. But anyway, thanks, Jim, for being here. We're looking forward to the third round. Thank you for having me. These discussions are always great. And, uh, yeah, so I'm due again in uh, in 2024. It's it's not a loop. Oh, oh, 2027. 2027. Everywhere. Yeah, okay. Everywhere. Update. All right, well, thanks for joining us. If we wait another 10 years, it'll be like at least 1,000 different new. Oh my god, yeah, we can't wait that long. Things are speeding up.